Samaritan's Purse, which is a, the organization that Franklin Graham runs, when there's a disaster in an area, such as the fires in Gatlinburg, one of the things they do is they go in and they work with victims of those disasters to recover as many things as they can from you know, the home that was lost to fire, for example. So in Gatlinburg, you know, ever since that fire, they've been sifting through the ashes and the rubble to find anything. It might be a piece of china that was handed down, you know, from grandparent to to child to grandchild, and that's the only thing that they now have left that belonged to their grandparent. It could be a wedding or an engagement ring. It could be, uh, you know, maybe even some photographs. But they look for those personal, priceless things to try to return to those homeowners. That's truly a wonderful ministry because these people have lost everything. They've lost their clothes. They've lost their electronics. The kids have lost their toys. They've lost uh, just... You think about all of the comforts that you have at your home. They lost it all. And so to have anything that they can remember that can tie them back, especially to their heritage, especially to family... Uh, something that was a special gift given by a loved one. It just means the world to them. And I thought about that, you know, and, and we often, you know, play, the, I don't know about you, but I know that I've played that little mental exercise. If, if my house was on fire, what, what would I rescue? What would I, I get out? And of course, we all, first and foremost, would get out what? Our family, right? Our family, maybe our pets. And then beyond that, what would we go after? Photographs, you know, those, those irreplaceable things. Why is that? I think it's because deep down inside we all know that the most important thing in life isn't things, but it's relationships, isn't it? It's the people who are present in our life. You know, when we're small children, what we want most from mom and dad sometimes are money, toys, stuff, presence with a T-S on the end. But as we get older, we learn that really what we value most from our parents and from our grandparents isn't the presence, but their presence. That they are with us. You know, I think back to my childhood and what I value the most is that my mom and dad and my grandparents, they were there for me. You know, they were there at every ball game and every performance and competition uh, every time I preached in some little country church as a young person, my dad was always there to hear that sermon. And that, that's what I carry with me. I, you know, you know if, if I didn't look at the pictures of, of Christmas mornings, I couldn't tell you what presents they got me. But I can tell you all about the presence that they had in my life. And so when it comes to God, does anything really matter any more than His presence with us? God's presence is one of the central themes of Scripture. And really, it's what the heart of every human being longs for. St. Augustine called it a God-shaped void, a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every human being. And people have always tried to fill that hole in their heart with stuff, with trinkets, with pleasures, but none of those things ever really satisfy because it's, it's just more presence. And we don't really need or want that. What we really need and want is God's presence with us. God's covenant with Abraham, God's covenant with children of Israel at Mount Sinai were all about how God could be present 
with His people on earth. Last week, we looked at the rules of the relationship, the law, the Ten Commandments, and all the accompanying laws that God gave to Israel. Their purpose was to show Israel how they could have a relationship with a holy God. And we also saw last week how miserably they failed to keep that law. And so God ordained a system of sacrifices to take care of their sin so that God could be present with them. And we're going to look more at that next week. We're going to look at the sacrificial system that God gave Israel. So the covenants, the law, the sacrifices, they were all designed to enable God to be able to be present in the midst of His people. And part of that system was something called the tabernacle, which would become a permanent temple down the road during Solomon's reign as king of Israel. And these were the places, the tabernacle and the temple, they were the places through which God's presence could dwell among His people without His glory consuming them. God chose the tabernacle among Israel to make a literal, physical home for His glory on earth, much like the Garden of Eden was. If we go back to Genesis chapter 2, if we look at the Garden of Eden, it was a place on earth where God's glory, God's presence could dwell with people. You think about Adam and Eve. Everything was, was perfect for them. They enjoyed the fullness of God's presence on earth. They could walk and talk with God. There was complete harmony with God and with each other and with the world around them. But when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, that perfect fellowship was instantly destroyed. Remember how they tried to hide from God's presence rather than walking with God's presence? They are now hiding from God's presence. And that separation would only grow stronger as God would even expel them and exile them from His presence in the garden. And ever since that day, humanity has been trying to regain God's presence. We've been trying to get back to the garden ever since. When you read the Bible, one of the greatest curses that God could ever pronounce on His people is the absence of His presence. To be cut off from God, to be rejected by Him, to have God turn His back on you was the worst thing that could happen. Because the ultimate consequence, the ultimate curse for sin is separation from God. You think about it, if, if the greatest blessing, if what we really want down inside, if there's this God-shaped hole and what we really need is the presence of God, then what could be worse than being completely cut off from our Creator. Really, that's the truest definition of hell. The complete and total, eternal absence of God. So from the moment Adam and Eve were banished from God's presence in the garden, people have looked for God in all the wrong places. Fame and fortune, possessions and pleasures, religions and idols, but none of these ever satisfy because that's not where God is found. We cannot work hard enough. We cannot search long enough to make our way back into God's presence. Because the gulf that our sin has caused between us and God, that, that, that sin that separates us from God, is too great for us to cross. If you've ever been to the Grand Canyon, could you imagine if you stood on one side of the Grand Canyon and looked at that and thought, I can do that. I can I could build a bridge across that right now. You'd be a fool. You couldn't do it. 
And neither can we get to God, no matter how great our intentions might be. Which is what makes God's redemptive plan so amazing. So loving, so filled with grace, because God can cross that gulf. That's exactly what God begins to do from Genesis 3 on. From the moment He banishes Adam and Eve from the garden, God has been at work making a way for us to once again enjoy His presence. God, throughout Scripture, longs to live with His people. Which is why God gave Moses these detailed plans for constructing a tent in which God's glory could reside on earth. Look with me at Exodus chapter 25. And these laws will be on the screen. Exodus chapter 25. This is right after... God has sort of given them the, the law, the covenants, and they confirm that they want to enter into this covenant relationship with God. And it says in verse 8, God tells Moses, Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. And so this tabernacle was the focal point of the entire sacrificial system. It's where all the offerings, all the sacrifices would be brought. It would lead the people as they would travel through the wilderness. God's presence embodied in smoke and fire would lead them. And so when it would move, they'd pack up the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant would go in front, and they would begin to follow God's lead. And then when the cloud would stop, they would know that's where they're supposed to camp. And they would set up the tabernacle first, and God's presence would reside over the tabernacle. And then the rest of the camp of Israel would set up in in like a cross shape from the tabernacle. The tabernacle was the center of the camp. And within this tent were sacred objects covered in gold, decorated with fruit and nuts and leaves, imagery meant to evoke the Garden of Eden, because this tent was supposed to be a taste of Eden and a foretaste of heaven. And the most important part of the tent was called the Holy of Holies or the Most Holy Place. It was sort of the hot spot of God's glorious presence, which resided in this space over the Ark of the Covenant that was called the Mercy Seat. Now, some of you this morning wonder when you came in, are we Jewish today? You know, we've got the menorah up here, right? Well, we wanted something, you know, a symbol, something physical. We're talking about physical things, tabernacles and arcs and things like that. So we thought, you know, we need something in here. And Matt and I just didn't have time to build an ark this week, you know. So, so we, we thought, you know, let's raid the drive-thru nativity stash. And, uh, and we found this. But this is, you know, sort of like the, the, the lampstand that would have been inside the tabernacle. And then they had the table of showbread. They had the altar of incense. They had the Ark of the Covenant. These, these holy sacred objects meant to convey to Israel the holiness, the glory, the presence of God. That God was with them and He wanted to be their God and He wanted them to be His people. Now listen to the description of the Ark of the Covenant. Just jumping over to verse 17. Make an atonement cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide. Make two cherubim out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. Make one cherub on one end and the second cherub on the other. Make the cherubim of one piece with the cover at the two ends. 
The cherubim are to have their wings spread upward, overshadowing the cover with them. The cherubim are to face each other, looking toward the cover. Place the cover on top of the ark and put in the ark the testimony which I will give you. There above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the testimony, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. And in this place where God's glory resided and He would meet with them, the holiness and the glory of God there was so intense that the only person who could enter in was the high priest. And even then, he could only enter in either to to make atonement on the Day of Atonement, or he could go in there to, to get the ark and to bring it out when they had to disassemble camp and move. But you just didn't walk into the Holy of Holies whenever you wanted to. And only the high priest could go in there. And only after he consecrated himself, there are these elaborate rituals whereby he had to make sure that he was ritually pure and he was clean. And then when they had to carry it, there were certain ways they had to handle it. They couldn't just reach in there and grab a hold of it and heft it up. There was a special way in which they had to do that because God's glory was so intense. God's holiness, God's glorious presence was nothing to take lightly. Think about it like the sun. Think of the sun. We need the sun to live on this planet, don't we? The sun does a lot of things for us. It keeps the earth revolving or revolving around it, doesn't it? I mean, the sun's gravity keeps us kind of in place. It keeps us in what the, they call the Goldilocks zone. It's not too hot. It's not too cold. It's just right. And if we were just a little bit further away, a little bit closer to the sun, all life on earth would perish. The sun's great. It gives us energy. It gives us light. Plant life exists because of it. It, it, it dictates our weather. We get rain because of the sun. Right? It's a good thing. But if you look at the sun too long and you stare at it, what happens? It'll blind you, won't it? And if you just... Lay out there under the sun for too long and get too much exposure to it, what happens? You get sunburned. So we need the sun. The sun is good, but we have to respect the sun because it can kill you. It can harm you. And God's glorious presence was like that. It was good. It was life-giving, but you had to respect it. And there were certain ways that God set that up. And so the tabernacle... Was, was this reflection of the power of God's glorious presence. And it really was the greatest blessing God could give His people at that time because it was the gift of His presence with them. A taste of Eden, but a foretaste of the kingdom of heaven to come. Well, many generations later, Israel conquered, settled the promised land. We'll get there in our Bible readings. Uh, you may feel like we're never going to get there, but we will get there. And God gave them a king named David. And David wanted to build God a proper, permanent dwelling that would be greater than his own palace. He couldn't stand the idea that he lived in this gorgeous palace and God lived in a tent made out of animal skins. And so he was going to replace the tabernacle with a temple. But because David was a man of war, God said, Nope, you're not going to build my temple, but your son Solomon will build my temple. And so Solomon spent seven years constructing this huge, ornate temple for the Lord. And upon its completion, he dedicated the temple to God with this huge celebration. And God's presence came and filled the temple just as his presence had filled the tabernacle. Listen to 1 Kings chapter 8, 
The King, Sol- the King Solomon summoned into his presence at Jerusalem the elders of Israel, all the heads of the tribe, the chiefs of the Israelite families, to bring up the Ark of the Lord's Covenant from Zion, the city of David. All the men of Israel came together to King Solomon at the same at the time of the festival in the month of Ethanim, the seventh month. And when all the elders of Israel had arrived, the priests took up the ark and they brought up the ark of the Lord and the tent of meeting and all the sacred furnishings in it. The priests and the Levites carried them up. And King Solomon and the entire assembly of Israel that had gathered about him were before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and cattle that they could not be recorded or counted. The priests then brought the ark of the Lord's covenant to its place in the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place, and put it beneath the wings of the cherubim. The cherubim spread their wings over the place of the ark and overshadowed the ark and its carrying poles. These poles were so long that their ends could be seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary, but not from outside the holy place. And they are still there today, meaning when this was written, not today, obviously. There was nothing in the ark except the two stone tablets that Moses had placed in it at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the Israelites after they came out of Egypt. And when the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. And the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled His temple. What an amazing moment that must have been. The temple's permanent and fixed placement in Israel, signified that God had fulfilled His covenant promise to Abraham's descendants to give them this land as an eternal inheritance. It was a powerful visual message that God was establishing His rule and reign on the earth and Israel was to be an example to the rest of the world what it meant to live in the presence of God. Again, it was a taste of the garden, but a foretaste of God's coming eternal rule and reign. Now, if you look on over in verse 27, Solomon prays a prayer. He he prays a prayer of dedication after God's presence fills the temple. And Solomon gets it. Solomon understands what this temple signifies, but also its shortcomings. Listen to what he says. But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. How much less the temple I have built. Yet give attention to your servant's prayer and hear his plea for mercy, O Lord my God. Hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence this day. May your eyes be toward this temple night and day, this place of which you said, My name shall dwell there, so that you will hear the prayer your servant prays toward this place. Hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place. And when you hear forgive. Solomon knew that no tent, no temple could really contain God, but rather in God's grace and mercy and love, he had somehow limited himself in some way, even if it was just a part of himself. This this visible manifestation of his glory, his name, so that he could dwell in the midst of his people. But God is far greater than even that stone structure, isn't he? But God would look to that place. God would bend His ear to that place and listen to the prayers of His people. And at that place, God would provide forgiveness for sins. Now, following this amazing dedication ceremony, God gave Solomon a warning. Flip over to chapter 9. 
Beginning in verse 6, God says, But if you or your sons turn away from me and do not observe the commands and decrees I have given you and go off to serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land I have given them and will reject this temple I have consecrated for my name. Israel will then become a byword and an object of ridicule among the peoples. And though this temple is now imposing, all who pass by will be appalled and will scoff and say, why has the Lord done such a thing to this land and to this temple? People will answer, because they have forsaken the Lord their God, who brought their fathers out of Egypt and have embraced other gods, worshiping and serving them. That is why the Lord brought all this disaster on them. Israel would enjoy the blessings of the land and God's presence in the temple only so long as they stayed faithful to their covenant relationship with God. If they honor their vows, if they follow the rules of the relationship, then God would keep them in the land and He would dwell in their midst. But if they were unfaithful to God, if they committed spiritual adultery by running after idols, then God would remove His presence from the temple and He would remove the people from the land. And rather than knowing the blessings of His presence, they would experience the curse of His rejection. And sadly, that's exactly what happened. Israel did turn their backs on God. They broke their covenant vows. They committed adultery against God. And God, ever true to His Word, allowed their enemies to overrun them and eventually exile them from the land. They lost the blessing of the land and the temple. And if you look at Ezekiel chapter 10 and 11, you read this dramatic account of when God's glory departed from the temple, almost exactly the reverse of what happened in 1 Kings chapter 8. And once again, history repeated itself. God's people have sinned against Him. They've been kicked out of the garden once again. Kicked out of the land. Kicked out of the presence of the Lord. Alienated from God and exiled. See, as great as they were, the law, the sacrificial system, the tabernacle and the temple, they simply could not permanently solve human sinfulness, which continually separates us from God's holy presence. Rather, the law with its sacrifices and tabernacle and rituals was a mere shadow of what was to come. They were just the lead-up to God's ultimate and eternal fix to the problem of sin. And that brings us to John Chapter 1, which was our New Testament reading this morning. Let me read it once again. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. The Greek word there is the same word that means tabernacle. The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. And then let's skip down to verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only who is at the Father's side, has made Him known. The presence of God once again returned, not in a tent made of animal skins, nor in a temple made of stones, but in a man made of flesh and blood in the person of Jesus Christ. 
Jesus came to solve every problem that the events of the Old Testament have raised. Jesus came to once and for all enable God's holy presence to dwell among sinful people and at the same time demonstrate for us what it looks like when people dwell with God in holiness and truly bear His image for all the world to see. That is what Jesus came to do. And through His death and resurrection... God's presence could once again dwell with people forever. We don't have to worry about losing God's presence ever again. There's no land for us to be kicked out of. There's no temple to be removed from our presence. Now, how does that work? How does it work now that Jesus has come? He has died on the cross. He's taken care of the sin problem. We can be holy not because we keep all the rules and rituals, but because Jesus Christ has kept the rules of the relationship perfectly. And we put our faith and trust in Him. We can have His righteousness. We can come into this relationship with God. We can enter into the throne room of, of, of God with boldness and confidence. But then didn't Jesus go to heaven? Didn't Jesus ascend to heaven? So where is God's presence now? You see, once Jesus went back to heaven, God continued to tabernacle here on earth. In fact, Jesus promised His followers before He left that He would always be with them. He said, I will be with you, even to the end of the age. And He promised that God's Holy Spirit would come to be our advocate to indwell us and remind us of His teachings, to convict the world of sin and error, to empower us to be Jesus' witnesses and to make more disciples of all the nations. And so on the day of Pentecost, 40 days, 40 days after Easter, on the day of Pentecost, the Jewish celebration of the first fruits of the harvest, God sent His Holy Spirit to indwell the hearts of Jesus' followers. And the church was born. And Peter preached, and that day, 3,000 people were saved and added to the church the first fruits of the harvest. God's presence first tabernacled in a tent of animal skins and cloth. And then in a temple of stone. And then in the flesh and blood person of Jesus Christ. But now, God's presence tabernacles on earth through the church. Through you and through me. This is what Paul is talking about in Ephesians chapter 2. Beginning in verse 19, he says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ Himself as the chief cornerstone. In Him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become what? A holy temple in the Lord. And in Him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. You and I, we're the temple. The church is where God chooses now to dwell among us. He lives in us by His Spirit. But you know what? Still, still, We are just a foretaste of what is yet to come. 
Think of it this way. We're the advanced guard marching forward into the world, carrying the banner of God's coming kingdom, telling the good news that the King is coming to make all things new. We are to find those who are lost and slaves to the dominion of darkness and show them how they can defect and become citizens of the kingdom of light. That is our job. But in Revelation 21 and 22, the Bible ends with a beautiful vision. No no more just a taste of Eden and a foretaste of what's to come, but the consummation, the final realization of God's presence fully on earth once again. Look with me at Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and He will live with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. When Jesus returns to undo the curse of sin, he will make all the sad things come untrue. Jesus will make all things new. And all of creation will be filled with God's presence just as it had in the beginning. In verse 22 it says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Temples and tabernacles and churches are no longer needed because what Adam and Eve enjoyed in the garden will once again become reality for all the earth. God's dwelling will be with people and He Himself will be with us. He will be our God and we will be His people and the old order of things will pass away because all things will become new again. And then finally look at chapter 22 beginning in verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. And the angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And they are beautiful. And they are powerful. And they should transform us. Not just in our hope for what is to come, but in how we live our lives today. Now there's a lot of implications for this. And I want to share one with us today. One challenge with us because of the truth of this message. The truth of God's presence on earth. If you go back to Mount Sinai, And the moment Israel almost lost God's presence, because even before Moses comes down with the Ten Commandments, they've already broken the first two. And they made this golden calf and they worshipped it. God ultimately forgave their unfaithfulness, but not before seriously considering taking His presence from them. Listen to what it says 
in Exodus 33. The Lord said to Moses, leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt. I love that. You know, it's like when your kid misbehaves and you look at your husband or your wife and you say, well, that's your kid, right? God says to Moses, these people you brought up out of Egypt and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you. I will drive out the Canaanites, go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn. The story is especially tragic because the preceding chapters before this are all about God's tabernacle. So here's God making a way to live in the midst of His people. And right before they reject God for an idol they made, God told Moses, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. But as terrible as this is, it's also amazing. Because in this curse, God was offering to still bless the Israelites. He was going to give them what they wanted. He was going to keep His promise to Abraham. He would give them the promised land. He would defeat all their enemies. God was offering to bless Israel apart from His presence. He was going to give them all the stuff they wanted without the relationship. Because the people can go on sinning, so why not just make it easier for them? Just accept my blessings, go on your way. And isn't that exactly what most people want today? I mean, God's presence is nice, but what we really want is what He can give us, right? We're all guilty at some point in our life of seeking God's hand but not His face. Whenever your prayer life becomes a rattling off a list of things you want God to, to do, but you never stay long enough to just enjoy being in His presence, to praise Him and to thank Him, then you are guilty of wanting presence from God's hand, but not His presence. We see it in worship. When our focus becomes, what did I get out of worship today? How was I fed when it becomes more about my enjoyment than what I put into worship for God's enjoyment, then we are seeking the blessings of His hand, but not the presence of His face. Consider this morning God's presence in your life. How are you guilty of seeking God's blessings apart from His presence? And be honest. For Israel, this was a crucial moment of truth. Moses understood what was at stake. He responded, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all other people on the face of the earth? Moses understood. He got it. What made Israel special wasn't the land. It wasn't Moses. It wasn't God's blessing of military might. What made Israel distinct among the nations was God's presence with them. God's presence was their only hope, their only reason for existing. They could not be the people of God without the presence of God dwelling among them. How much does God's presence matter to you? Are you a temple of God's Holy Spirit this morning? Does Jesus live in your heart? If He does not, He is standing at the door of your heart knocking. Jesus will not barge in where He's uninvited. Jesus is waiting for you 
to say, yes, Jesus, I want you to dwell in me. Live in me. I don't want to live for myself. I don't want to be this empty shell trying to fill my happiness with religion and idols and pleasures and possessions. I want you, Jesus, to fill this hole in my heart. If that's you this morning, when we sing in just a moment, I would love nothing more than to help you welcome Jesus into your life. And let God's Spirit fill you up from the inside out until He overflows and changes you and transforms your life. Perhaps this morning, God is calling you to join us here at First Baptist Church, to unite with our church family, to enjoy God's presence together with us in worship and reflect God's presence together in service to our community. Would you come and unite with us today as we seek to embody God's presence right here in McDuffie County? How is your relationship with God today? Have you become maybe too focused on what you want God to do for you rather than who God is to you? Are you too focused on receiving His blessings that you no longer long for His presence? Are you focused too much on His hand that you forgot what it's like to just gaze into His face? Maybe this morning you need to renew your love for Jesus so that Like the psalmist, you can honestly say, one thing I ask from the Lord, and this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord, and to seek Him in His temple. Is that your desire? Is that your heart and your prayer today? Let's stand together and let's sing, and you respond as God leads you.